Welcome back to the Hemingway List, Year of War and Peace. We're talking about Book 1, Chapter 9. But first I wanted to point out this awesome post by Sal Quick. I just picked up my copy from the library. Now I have a coffee, a shady spot at the park, and some catching up to do. And a photograph here of a nice park, a nice old uh, gum tree, I think. And the same copy of War and Peace that I purchased yesterday, the PNV translation, vintage classics, paperback with the nice uh, floral front cover, and a nice little uh, cup of coffee there as well. That is a nice way to spend the summer. I asked Selquick where they were from because it's just funny that we're all around the world and Selquick has posted a picture. It turns out they're in the same state as me. I'm in the Yarra Valley there in, uh, out near the beach there, on the peninsula. So that's nice. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Howdy, neighbour. Um, guys. Guys, 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 guys. Post more of those pictures of where you're reading War and Peace. I love seeing them all around the world. Right now. Book 1, Chapter 9 is, uh, these are the discussion prompts. I pinched these from last year's discussion by Seven of Nine. Nikolai is joining the army with the bravery of youth, but surprisingly his parents seem only resigned to it and indulgent of his dis- of his decision. <coughs> Excuse me. Do they understand the danger that's coming and accept it, or are they treating his decision with a lightheartedness reserved for a child who, in today's terms, wants to major in something looked upon as useless? Cousinhood is a dangerous neighbourhood. War and Peace was written in 1867 about events that took place 60-ish years earlier. Do you think that items like cousin marriage, so easily touched on in this book, were already starting to look antiquated, even reprehensible, to readers in Tolstoy's time? What was your impression of the manner in which Vera's reply and smile were described by Tolstoy when she was speaking to her mother about her upbringing, resentment, exasperation, in which the Countess seems to be indulging the younger sister, Natasha? Question mark. Grumpy Shakespearean said, I didn't think of Nikolai as having a useless major as much as not knowing what to major in. He blustered, exploding, it's my vocation. To me, this sounds like a lost kid who doesn't know what to do, and his parents are indulging him because they know it's a phase. The whole scene gave me a you-don't-understand-me-teenager-rant vibe. I don't think of the cousin thing that way. I thought they were saying cousins marrying each other is entirely natural, so it can be dangerous to be close to your cousins. It breeds intimacy that may not be shared, and then comes heartbreak. Poor Vera. One paragraph, my heart broke for her. The oldest child forced to live to the parents' high standards, but whose siblings can do whatever they want. Some things never change. The Countess was repeating the delusions of so many parents who imagine their children have no secrets from them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Summary here by Zukov17. Nikolai Rostov has a tough go of it at the party. All the guests, especially Count Rostov, start getting under his skin because they are insinuating that Nikolai is only joining the military because his buddy Boris has joined thanks to Prince Vasily Karagin. Nikolai gets furious, although his dad calms down and him down and promises he's only joking, and finds himself finding solace in a young lady, Julie Karagin, who, which makes his cousin Sonia incredibly jealous, because she's in love with him. As the kids leave, everybody jokes about how they know all the kids are getting together in a sexual way. Kids will be kids, they say. 
And parents usually know that's what's really going on. The Countess sees everyone out. Is that what... I don't think they're getting it on in a sexual way. I think they're just kind of, you know, getting little crushes and stuff. Um, because aren't they like 13? Anyway. Doesn't matter. Spaceman35 said this. Hello, everyone. Hello, Spaceman35. Welcome to A Year of War and Peace. I just started the other day and just caught up. I love this whole premise of taking it slow and reading just one chapter per day. So I'm committing to the project. Awesome. Good to have you here. For chapter nine, I just wanted to say I absolutely love how Tolstoy introduces his characters. In describing Nikolai's niece, Sonia, like a pretty but not yet fully formed kitten, which would someday be a lovely little cat. I have this clear vision of what she looks like and behaves like in my head. I don't even want to look at how these characters are portrayed in media adaptations because Tolstoy does a great job and I prefer using my imagination. Well, that's good. I think that's good. I think that's good. I like that um, he also made use of the word gamble. Gamble? Gamble? Gambling? Uh, Which is like how a kitten would play with some wool or something like that. Gambles. Uh, that's a good word. Um, okay, where am I? I lost my spot. Greyboff said, I got the impression that she's used to these kinds of comments, referring to um, Vera. Poor old Vera. Uh, uh, um, I am a Norwegian, says Boris's mother, commenting uh, about cousinhood being a dangerous neighborhood reminded me of a running gag in Arrested Development where the son of the main character is in love with his cousin. At one point they go to the movies and stumble into Le Cousin de Jure, a French movie about forbidden cousinly love. There are so many great running jokes in that show. I still laugh every time I see this picture. And I'm going to describe the picture. They're in the back of the car together. Um, Okay, we are just about ass to ankles back here. Maybe, that's the name of the cousin, do you want to hop on your cousin's lap there, please? And then she gets on her cousin's lap. And he says, whoa, bumpy road ahead. And then the cousin's face is like, oh, damn. That is a classic Arrested Development gag. And it's probably funnier in the show than me describing a picture. It appears I was totally wrong in my prediction last chapter that Boris would be off to war and Nikolai would live a life of peace, says Gwenadl. Oh, well, Nikolai seems in over his head. I wonder if he will end up like the famous picture of kids on their way to boot camp. Here's another picture I'm going to describe to you. It's, oh, God, that's depressing. It's a bus looking down the aisle of a bus in the middle of the aisle, walking back away from the camera, walking towards the back of the bus, is a clearly fully grown military man. And then in the rows facing the camera is a couple of dozen very depressed and worried-looking young men. They look about 16, 15 maybe, and they all look like they're absolutely shitting themselves. Um, da, ba, 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 ba. Oh, God, there's so many comments this year. I love it, but also, um, I just can't read them all. I just can't read them all. What do we need to know about this chapter? We think. Nikolai, I think Nikolai wants to go to the army because um, there's, at that time it, there was a real sense of like that's an honourable and worthy thing to do if you're a young man. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of honour to fight for your country and your people. 
And so I think there's a bit of that, him saying, it's my vocation. He's sort of saying, that's who I am. And also, Napoleon, even though he was the leader of the enemies, he was still just a megastar. He was as famous then as anyone's ever been. And this is pre-internet and TV and everything, you know? There's only word of mouth that Napoleon was... Everyone in the world knew him. He was as famous as you can get. To the point where he was kind of turned into an idol, into a kind of myth, even while he was still alive. I think he was one of those early people who could turn themselves into a myth. You know, they could they could uh, create their own mythology while they lived it, control their image, control the rumours about them, to the point where they became almost godlike while they were still alive. That's what he was like. I think there would have been, similarly as today, there'd be people who can't name, you know, the president or the prime minister of their own country, but they know who, you know, the president of America is or something like that, you know. Everyone knows who Trump is, even people who don't know anything about their own country. So all around the world, Napoleon was this kind of invincible leader, the greatest man ever alive. And... um yeah, young people aspired to be like him, even if he was the leader of the enemy. Snoozy, with three, with one O and three and two zeros, said, "My impression of Nicholas is a bit of a mix between Pierre not really knowing what to do with his life and Andrew's desire to do something new and exciting." Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good. It's pretty spot on. He was supposed to work in archives and be either a diplomat or a government worker. The two things couldn't be further away from excitement of the military. As was brought out by others in the thread, that the youth looked up to political leaders as celebrities. If Bonaparte is changing the game, seems super smart and all that, it would make sense that the young men would want to reach that level, ideology, ideology aside. But as others have mentioned as well, I'm not sure the Rostovs would have given in to his desires had they really thought it a threat to his life, especially because they seem like a genuinely loving family. Vera. For whatever reason, I don't feel bad for Vera, says Snoozy with two zeros and one O. Maybe it's the way he writes about how her face wears her smile. It just made me think of someone who is bitter. While that bitterness is coming from being restricted much more than your younger siblings and you see all their fun, the person you are can be apparent by how you react to a situation. Yeah, I think the thing about Vera is she's just kind of not... Something about her is not likeable. <laughs> I love how this, they're kind of talking about her um, while she's in the room, almost forgetting she's there. And she says some perfectly reasonable comment. Even the narrator says what she said was perfectly reasonable. But still, everyone kind of looks at her like, why would you say that? Um, and then the guest is like, oh, I suppose sometimes we overthink our eldest kids a bit, don't we? We overdo it a bit. They turn out to be little dickheads, essentially, is what she's saying. While the oldest kid is sitting in the room, it's kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know, you just get the sense that maybe she's just not likeable. Um, all right. Oh, that's the conversation had. Now I'm going to read you chapter... What am I going to read you? Ten. Give me a moment while I scroll down to chapter ten. Oh, no, it's loading. 
It's loading. Okay, think amongst yourselves for a minute. I'm just going to go get my drink off the bench. Welcome back, me, to the podcast. If you're just joining me, that's weird. This is halfway through this episode. Oh, come on, computer, hurry up. All right, I'm going to have to just search for what I'm looking for. Hey, we got there. Oh no, I just realized that it's not chapter 10 that I'm reading. Oh my god. We're nearly there, guys. Patience, please. Patience, please. Hey, I think I found it. Chapter, what are we on? Chapter 13? Cool. All right. Sorry about the worst podcasting ever. I found what I have to read to you. Chapter 13 goes like this. Natasha didn't go far after escaping the drawing room, only to the conservatory. There she stopped and listened to the conversation in the drawing room, waiting for Boris to come out. She was immediately impatient, stamping her foot, ready to chuck a wobbly if if he didn't come out at once. Soon she heard the young man's discreet steps approaching at a very normal pace. Not slow, not fast. Then, that's when Natasha dashed swiftly among the flower tubs and hid there. Boris paused in the middle of the room, looked around, brushed a little dust off the sleeve of his uniform, then approached a mirror where he stood and studied his handsome face. Natasha remained hidden, peering out from her ambush, watching her crush to see what he would do. He kept admiring his own face for a bit, smiled, then walked to the other door. Natasha was about to call him, but changed her mind. Let him look for me, she thought. Moments after he went, Sonia came into the conservatory from the other door. She wasn't in a good state, flushed in tears and muttering angrily. Natasha checked her first impulse to run over to her, and she stayed hidden instead, watching invisible, her chance to see what went on in the world. She was experiencing a new and peculiar pleasure. Sonia, muttering to herself, kept looking over at the drawing room door. It opened and Nicholas came in. Sonia, what's up? What's the matter? said he, running up to her. Nothing, it's nothing. Leave me alone, sobbed Sonia. Ah, yeah, I know what it is. Well, if you know, fine. Piss off back to her. Sonia, come on, you're making me feel bad. And yourself feel bad too. Over nothing, said Nicholas, taking her hand. Sonia didn't pull it away, and she stopped crying. Natasha watched with bated breath, watching from her ambush with a twinkle in her eyes. Now, what will they do, she thought. It's got to change a word here, editing on the fly. Sonia, no one else in the whole world matters to me. Only you. You're my everything, said Nicholas, and I'll prove it to you. I don't like it when you talk that way. Okay, fine, I won't. Just forgive me, Sonia. He pulled her closer to him and kissed her. Oh, how nice, thought Natasha, and when Sonia and Nicholas had gone out of the conservatory, she followed and called Boris Called Boris over to her. Boris, come here, she said, with a cheeky look. I've got to tell you something. Over here, come on, 
and she led him into the conservatory and into her hiding spot among the flower tubs. Boris followed her, smiling. What's the something, he asked. She quickly improvised, glancing around and spotting the doll she had thrown down on one of the tubs. She grabbed it. Kiss the doll, she said. Boris didn't flinch. He looked kindly at her eager face but said nothing. You don't want to? Oh, well, come here then, she said. Moving deeper into their flower tub hiding place, she threw the doll down. Closer, come on, closer, she whispered. She caught the young officer by his cuffs, and her face went all serious and fearful. What about me? Would you kiss me? She whispered almost inaudibly, glancing up at him from under her brows, smiling, almost crying from excitement. Boris blushed. Ha, you are funny, he said, bending down to her and blushing still more, but he waited and did nothing. Suddenly Natasha jumped up onto a tub, making her taller than him, embraced him, locking her slender arms around his neck, and tossing back her hair, pashed him real good right on the lips. Then she slipped down from the tub, among the flowers on the other side, and stood hanging her head. Natasha, you know I love you, but... What's that? You're in love with me? Natasha broke in. Uh, yes, I am, but please, let's go about it like this. Wait another four years... Then I will ask for your hand. Natasha considered his words. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. She counted on her slender little fingers. All right, sounds good. Then it's settled. A big cheesy grin lit up her eager face. Settled, replied Boris. Forever, said the little girl, till death do us part. She took his arm and with a cheesy grin took him into the adjoining sitting room. All right, there you go. There's chapter 13 for you. Have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.